you, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Salt Lake Dirt. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Today, I welcome author Joseph Fasano to the show. His latest novel, The Swallows of Lunetto, came out on Maudlin House this past November. It's the story of a young couple's escape from Italian fascism at the end of the Second World War. Incredible book, beautifully written. I I finished it recently, and uh, this would be a great book for a book club. Uh, It just would spark some fascinating conversations. Uh, it, one cool thing, if you go to the Maudlin House website to purchase uh, The Swallows of Lunetto, you can enter in the promo code Salt Lake to get 10% off. That's Salt Lake, no spaces, and all lowercase. I'll put a link to this in the description. Also, make sure to check out Joseph's music. I'm definitely a fan now. I, r- I really dig it. Uh, his latest album, The Wind That Knows the Way, um, is available wherever you get your music. You can stream it, uh, download it, whatever. Uh, I'll play the title track from the album at the end of the interview, so make sure you stick around for that. Okay, let's get to it and talk with Joseph Fasano on the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. Thanks for listening. Great. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, This is very exciting. I um I got a copy of your new novel, The Swallows of of Lunetto, and I'm not quite done with it yet. But I I love what I've read so far. I I kind of feel like it's 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 the kind of book that I want to take my time with, if that makes sense. Um, it, the prose is just so beautiful, and when I found out af- later that you um you're a poet, it all kind of clicked. But it felt like it had. And this is a compliment, like an old, like a like a Hemingway type feel, just an older feel to it. So I thought um, you would have been much older. <laughs> so when I read a book, I try to just like not do any like looking up on the author at all. Just start it. Don't want to look at the picture of the author. Um, so it was just, you know, it's it's very captivating. And um, like I said, I'm loving it. I can't wait to finish it. Uh, tell us about the book. Uh, it's a historical fiction. But, you know, there's a lot of elements that, um, you know, it's post or near the end of World War II. Um, a lot of things kind of carry over to today it made me think about kind of situations just observing. So anyways, uh, that's me rambling right now. Tell us about the book. It's great. <laughs> well, I, I rarely tell anybody this, but I'm uh, I'm 178 years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's debatable, you know. Uh, well, the book, uh, and thanks for saying the things that you that you've said. Uh, you know, the book is set at the end of the Second World War, and uh, it's a book that's set in the south of Italy, which is where one branch of my family is from. And you know, this was a book that uh, I found myself drawn into for several reasons, and of course. Any writer knows that you you kind of only become conscious of those reasons either during the writing of the book or after the writing of the book. Even. But um, 
you know, one one bit was to actually connect to some of the history of my own family that I hadn't really looked at. Um, my real age is uh, 40. <laughs> so, but, in, but in all my years of, of writing books, um, I hadn't really approached my own personal kind of Italian heritage. There were times in the past I was, I had, let's say at least I was ambivalent uh, about it. And so anyway, I wanted to look at that and I wanted to go uh, back to that world, which of course I've actually physically spent time in, but, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get there emotionally. And then of course, the, one of the other major things that I was doing in the book is looking at the political situation that we find ourselves in today, both in the United States and of course, um, in a lot of different places across the globe. But I, I didn't want to come at the, for, for, for various different reasons, I didn't want to come at that exactly. I didn't want to hit the nail right on the head. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to write that kind of novel, whatever that kind of novel is. And so, uh, you know, you go to history, you go to the things that you, you know, I, I happen to be passionate about reading about uh, uh, history, particularly the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, my late paternal grandfather fought uh, in Patton's Third Army at the Battle of the Bulge in the, in the in the Second World War, and so anyway, I wanted to take a close look at um, the historical parallels, the rise of fascism, how this actually happens, and you know nowadays the dialogue, especially if you go on social media spaces, is not exactly that profound, right? And and there's there's, I, I still think it's the artist's job to to try to enter the flesh of some people whose whose ideas maybe you don't agree with. Um, and to kind of really get into it and think, well, how does this happen? How do people, you know, how were people supporting Mussolini? What was that all about? You can't just sit back in an armchair in 2020, 2021, 2023, uh, and, uh, and just judge it without, you know, being in it, uh, as much as you can. So anyway, that's a little bit of where the book kind of comes from. Books always come from mysterious places, I guess, but that's a, that's a, that's the sense I've been able to make of it. <laughs> so oh, great, and um, so is your family from? And, and make sure I'm pronouncing this right. Um, Calabria, Calabria. Yeah, so Calabria is uh, one branch of my family. My father's father's family is from actually a town called Fasano, my last mm -hmm. name, which is not in that area. Um, but my father's mother's family is from a little town called Albanella, which is just north of Calabria. And uh, so I made up this little fictional town, uh, Luneto, which is which I set in Calabria. But I wanted to to give it that fictional component. I wanted to be able to move stones around and put a road where I needed a road, and not have to have that kind of fidelity to fact. Um, so uh, so yeah yeah, great. And I should mention the the book is. Um it came out in November on Maudlin House, which is one of my favorite small presses. Um, every every time Mallory reaches out with with a book, I I always say yes because I know I'm gonna like it. Just the quality of work that comes out of that of that small press. I've I haven't read a book I I didn't like um, from them. So how did you get hooked up with uh, Mallory at Maudlin House as far as getting this book published? Well, Mallory is really great. My my, so as you mentioned, I'm a poet. So most of my, well, all of my my books, my first four books were books of poetry, and then I published a novel in 2020 called The Dark Heart of Every Wild Thing uh, through Platypus Press in the uh, in the UK. Uh, 
and um, I mean, I had known about Maudlin House, and, and just as you say, um, they do some quirky stuff. They they're kind of bold, you know. They really have a spirit of an independent press, where uh, you know I think they just allow authors to be authors. They allow literature to be literature, and she, Mallory had put that first novel of mine on a list. So you know, they do a list, a wrap up list at the end of every year, something like you know the top 10 or 20 you know indie press books that they enjoyed and they had put my first novel on that list and i thought well you know um that sounds interesting and i i publishing with platypus press in the uk was one thing i actually just heard this morning uh that they're closing up which is just such a disaster mm -hmm. they always you know the small presses indie presses have such a such a mountain to climb mm -hmm. you know corporate structure that they're fighting against Anyway, but at the time, I wanted to switch to a U.S.-based press. It's better with distribution. People can get your books more easily. And so Mallory and I were in touch, uh, you know, because she had put that first novel on her on her end-of-the-year list. And uh, we connected. And uh, it's funny. We actually just met for the first time in person a couple weeks ago. Oh, wow. Being in Philadelphia um, at... Uh, a novel idea bookstore, which is run by uh, a fellow Maudlin House author, Christina Rosso, uh, who's a wonderful writer and a great person, and uh, her partner. They run that bookshop. So Mallory and uh, and Bulent, who also works in the press and does some of the design elements, they came out from Chicago. We all had a great time. Yeah, they're wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about. It. I've you know I've done several of their book have have several of their authors on the show and it's just i'm always excited to talk to the people behind these incredible books i mean it's it, it is yeah the mountain that they have to climb is i i mean i don't even i can't grasp it fully and just the quality of work that comes out of some of these small presses is just outstanding um so i i did want to ask you okay so you did i wanted to talk to you about your the previous book the dark heart of every wild thing and i noticed it came out in in 2020 and then uh the new book came out you know the end of last year so uh, to, to me that's pretty fast as far as writing a novel and it's you know especially the the current the one i'm reading right now um it, it's epic it's a it's a big one i mean it's it's awesome but it's uh you know, a little over 400 pages, I believe. And, um, I'm, I'm just curious about being able to produce such a high quality of work. I know you're also a professor, so you, you know, you have other commitments. Where do you find the time, uh, to, to kind of do it all. And then not to mention the music and the poetry, <laughs> but yeah. I'm just like, I'm kind of blown away by how prolific, um, the stuff you've put out. And like I said, I've been listening to your music and I, I'm really digging it. It's very, my dog seems to love it. He's <laughs> very, very calm and just like laid his head down on my leg and he doesn't usually do that. So he must like your voice. <laughs> but how, do you, how do you find the time? Well, you know, the, 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 the half joke, half truth that I've been telling um, often when I'm asked this question is now I don't, because now I'm a father, mm -hmm. my, uh, my son is turning, turning one in a couple days. So things have been, uh, it's been a little bit, I mean, it's been wonderful, um, but I've been focusing on that, but before my son was born, um, you know, I, I've always been someone who burns the candle at both ends. It's just, uh, you know, I'm really, really, you know, driven. Um, and I feel that I've got to get these things, you know, out of me. 
but I will say this, the, you know, the first novel took me five years to write. I was something I was working on as I was writing my poems. I've always been working on poems and, and you know, suddenly the story announced itself. So I worked on it. I hacked at it and all the, you know, the usual procedure there. And I had an agent and we were thinking about, you know, structure of the novel. Anyway, that novel came out, but the story of this novel, because it, it did happen very quickly. Uh, and sometimes I tell this story because maybe it, it might help any writers listening is that while I was working on that first novel for about five years, I, you know, I'd say in the last two, two and a half years of that process, I was working on another novel manuscript. Um, and then in maybe the last year of the process of working on my first novel, I added a kind of a third, you know, simultaneous project. So I had these two projects going on at the same time, finished the first novel, put it out, revisited um, that second novel manuscript in earnest for about a year. And honestly, it, it kept growing. You know, it, it looked like a novel. It had words on the page, you know, it printed out. You could hold it up into the light, but it just wasn't working. Uh, and so I went to that third manuscript and for about a year, you know, or worked on that uh, really nonstop. And once again, I had to do the very difficult thing of, of putting it on the shelf and saying, it's just not working. And then one day, um, you know, it was around in, I guess it must've been October of uh, 2021. I don't know. I can't get the dates right in my mind. Anyway, I had this kind of vision of this new book and I sat down and I started writing it and all of the years of struggle that I had done, you know, with those other two manuscripts suddenly something happened and I was able to write this novel. I had a draft of this novel, you know, very quickly relatively for novel writing. I don't know how many months it was, but, um, and on the surface, you know, it had nothing to do with the plots of those other two abandoned or temporarily maybe abandoned manuscripts. But I realized what happened is what often happens in the writing process is that there was some kind of alchemy going on. And I finally found the characters, the setting, Maybe it was about personally connecting to something that had you know, touched me um, with the Italian heritage. And then the novel happened very quickly. So, yeah, it's like what you're witnessing and what you're holding in your hands when you're reading the book is this sort of blossom of the process, this catastrophic, quick blossoming. Uh, but the answer to your question is all that other stuff I just mentioned. Those are the, you know, the gnarled roots in the darkness that many years long. That's that's great advice, because, yeah, sometimes I think people feel like they, they this they make something that's not working so they feel like it's a waste but ultimately it, it sounds like it's all part of the process to ultimately get to yeah. get you to where you need to be um i love that for a waste for sure definitely. yeah yeah um there there's a line in in the book in the new book that i i wish i wrote it down exactly um i forget where it is but they're talking about fascism and uh, they say something about like the like the fascists, like the the leader, they keep the darkness for us. Uh, something along those lines. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that. That really just kind of grabbed me and and found that so fascinating. Yeah, there, there's a moment in the book when an older man who has fought in the First World War is speaking to one of the main characters, uh, Alexandra. And he's talking about how tyrants, you know, how this happens. Um, how did Mussolini come to be? How did tyrants, how is it that people hand their will over to other people? And, and the line that you're thinking of is, um, 
he says to her, we think we begin to speak the language of tyrants, but really those tyrants come from the language we have spoken in our own hearts in the darkness. Mm -hmm. We worship such men because they keep our darkness for mm -hmm. us. Um, so that's, you know, the passage goes on. It's actually a passage um, that I've been reading a lot lately when I'm, you know, and traveling around to share the book. But yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I wanted to think about, you know how it is in the United States now, there's tremendous political division and you might find yourself with a family member or a close friend who thinks differently um, from the way that you think. And I think there are two possible responses to that. You know, one response is, you know, get the hell out of the room. <laughs> but another response is like, hey, you know, I, let's talk about it or let me hear, you know, what, what, is, what is making you think this way? Uh, and not in any sort of condescending way or any self-righteous way. Um, I don't know. I just think that you can be judgmental and whatever you want to be in your own personal life. But when you're writing a novel, if you bring those characteristics into that, um, it's just not going to happen. It's just mm -hmm. not going to work. So I found it very, um, very interesting to listen to some of the characters and what they had to say about it. The point at which you're, you're writing a book and it seems to take over mm -hmm. and the characters begin to speak to you. I, I, I learned a lot from them about, uh, you know, how people get caught up in certain systems of thought. There's tyranny all over the political spectrum. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's not just tyranny on the far right. It's everywhere, mm -hmm. you know. So I wanted to think about that in this book. Yeah, I, I think, well, definitely you, okay, so you mentioned earlier about, like, you didn't want to be, like, like heavy-handed in your face um, about, like, today, what's going on today. And it, it definitely wasn't, like, it. you know, you're reading the book, and I was totally, I'm totally absorbed in that time period and um, just that part of the world and, and and zeroing in on, you know, just certain people, everyday people, um, really makes it real. Um, so it's like, I think, but when you're living like you, like I, like in America, you can't help but like make some connections. So I think it's just, it's just the perfect balance of, um, you know, reading a great novel, but also kind of connecting it. I think a good book, you can, you can be reflective and think about, you know, your own life and the, the kind of the situation you're in within your control and without your, you know, out of your control. So I, yeah, I'm just, I just love, it. I need to get a hard copy of it. I'm going to order one because, um, I think it, on the, I'm reading it on my, uh, on my Kindle. And so I'm like, I'm not sure <laughs> where I am on the thing. Cause I don't, I don't have the page anyway. So, uh, it's just a, it's an epic book and there's just such beautiful prose in it, um, that I'm, I'm loving it. I'm savoring it. Uh, I did want to talk to you. So I'm a high school history teacher and, okay. and I teach um, mostly 11th and 12th graders right now. And I have uh, a, a lot of 12th graders and this has been the case year after year. They get the ones who are planning on going to college. They get so stressed out about picking a major. And I try to like, I try to tell them, you know, it's just like, just start something. You're going to be okay. You don't, this does not set, like, you don't have to do something for the rest of your life. Like you're 17 years old, like, but it, you know, it's hard to get through to them. But I noticed, uh, when you went to college, you, you, you started out with m mathematics and astrophysics, but then switched to philosophy. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm curious about that. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I always, um, you know, in my capacity as a, a professor for for some years, I was an advisor as well. And now I just do that, you know, unofficially students come to my office and we chat about it. And I always tell them, you know, if it helps, I tell them my story that, you know, I changed, I changed my major many times. I think that, you know, I work in higher education, and I care deeply about the idea of a liberal arts education. And so, you know, I understand there are, are certain students, depending on socioeconomic status, depending on their goals, um, you know, when they're 18, when they're 17, they're already thinking in terms of, you know, vocational training. And, and that's great. That's, that's one path. Um, but as you say, you know, those students who are going to enroll in a four-year college, um, I think it, it, there's, there need to be more voices. It sounds like you're one of those voices encouraging young students to really embrace the idea of liberal arts education and to not necessarily have to think of your life as, as commodified, at least at that point, right? So, um, yeah, I did. I was somebody who was very interested in mathematics and the sciences when I was younger, um, and, you know, I still am. I don't buy into this whole, you know, left brain, right brain kind of, you know, what your particular intelligence. I think that started out with some good descriptive intentions, but very quickly got hijacked by the, uh, you know, the, the sort of a corporate structure of, of our culture so that it more, be, right, it yeah. became like, this is the one thing you're going to do. You know, you don't have any business being good at something else. So, yeah, I jumped around a lot, and then I ended up studying philosophy. Uh, when I was at Harvard, the philosophy department was very analytical in nature, so it wasn't a huge leap from mathematics in a way. Um, but I felt that I wanted to do that. It sort of gave me things to write about, and I was already writing at that point. But yeah, really, just to um, to reinforce what you were what you were getting at, I think is that I try to talk to my students and say, okay, we can have practical conversations. Where do you want to go? Is it grad school? Is it this or that industry? But here you are, at least in the first couple of years of your college experience. And if you're on a particular kind of path, you can embrace it, you know, go, go study something that you, you know, I always say, trust me, when you're 30, 35 years old, you'll look back like, I wish I could take a class on, you know, um, Egyptian history on, on whatever it might be, yeah. you know, like it's, I just dork out on the course catalog and I try to, <laughs> I try to do, you know? <laughs> uh, so what do you, what do you teach right now? What, what um, courses do you, do you offer? So I norm I normally for, for about 15 years, I've been, you know, the class that I'm most passionate about is, is a class on prosody, poetic rhythm, poetic meter, poetic form. Um, so I, I, I teach that I teach poetry workshops, sometimes fiction workshops. Um, but I'm also passionate about teaching, uh, composition. I think a lot of people, you know, I have a full-time professorship that, you know, in my contract, that's, that's part of what I do. And, you know, I know a lot of people, not necessarily my institution, but who, who might think of that as just kind of a burden. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really, especially in the past couple of years, I care so much about that class because it's really a class about communication. You know, when I started teaching that 15 years ago, it's okay, you know, let's talk about composition. Now it's like, how do we, you know, how do we do critical thinking when it comes to a tweet that you've read today? Yeah. Um, you know, those are important things that I always say, you know, these are, these are young people, these are voters. So I care, I care a lot about that. Um, you know, that said, and we can get into this at some other time, but, but there are um, ways in which I also have frustrations with certain 
aspects of, of, of the academy mm-hmm. as, as anybody would. And so I also, I do a lot of independent teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, students, people reach out to me and we talk for a little while and see what their goals are. And I love to work individually. I'm working with one student now who's, you know, based in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's super talented. And, you know, you're able to just go with the flow, give a curriculum based on that one student. And um, so I, I do that kind of stuff as well. It's really rewarding. I love that. I'm, yeah, I'm the same way. And, and, you know, on a high school level, the, you know, because some of my classes, they got 40 students in there and, um, you wow. know, you, you do your best. But the the one on one, like connections and talking about like more of a holistic approach to their education or their or their life path or anything, that's that's the rewarding part. And I think it's so important for younger people to have you know, people like that in their lives. So, so we've been doing, so I've been doing my high, high school teaching for about 15 years. Um, I'm really curious on the, so when they're done with me, they come to you on some, on some <laughs> level. I'm curious about what have you noticed um, good or bad or, or, or neither has changed in academia um, students coming in. I'm just really curious about, the the shift if any you know that you've noticed yeah well you know it it's it's hard to generalize because it has been so all over the map i mean you know uh as i'm sure you you know and as i'm sure you 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 push back against i don't want to make any assumptions but you know there's a lot of teaching to the test at the secondary of course and so you will get a batch of students and you know manhattanville college where i spend most of my time is a wonderful school, but a very, you know, a very broad range of skills coming in. And that that's a very good challenge for a professor, but also um, a challenge, right? And so, you know, you'll have some students who have no idea what a comma splice is, no idea what an independent clause is, um, you know, approach grammar in a way as though it's the secondary or tertiary concern. I'm very passionate about the way that I, mm-hmm. I teach grammar. And anyway, um, and then you have other students who who are uh, who are right there with the skill sets and actually um, are very thoughtful. I've noticed a positive change um, in the past, like just two or three years. Something about the pandemic. Something about my students are you know are are I'm just noticing a, a thoughtfulness, a kind of kindness, that, a soft. Not to cut you up, but I was just talking about that with with someone. That's what I've noticed too. Like on a positive note, like. So at a high school level, the kindness, you know, there's been some bad stuff, but like I've never seen teenagers, you know, display some the kindness like this. It's uh, that's unbelievable. Across, we're across the country. And yeah. So yeah. anyways, continue. <laughs> no, no I, I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, the other day I was um, and I'm not cynical. I don't expect. But, you know, young people, I'd say you go back to about five, six, seven years ago and maybe there was a. Um, there was a bit of a low in terms of interpersonal communication and, uh, you know, you walk into a room and, Hey, how's everybody today? And it's just silence and uh, (laughs) everybody on their phones, you know? And, uh, but yeah, the, you know, this, I was just telling my wife that the past couple of weeks I'm walking out, my office is in the library at my campus and I walk out and there's a student staffing the desk every day. It's a sort of different student. And before I say anything, say, have a good evening, you know, and uh, wow, that there's something, I mean, maybe I don't mean to sound as though I have low expectations, but, (laughs) but there definitely seems to be, maybe people have, um, 
Maybe they've had conversations with their parents and their families. Um, frankly, we're living closer to mortality and the idea of mortality than yeah. we have as a, as a society in a really long time. So that those are the positives for sure. I mean, I do think that um, you know a lot of the challenges you get is by the time students get to my level, some of them have been kind of pushed through, mm-hmm. you know, and oh, so yeah. you you can have a class of students um, who really are begging, although they may not know they're asking, <laughs> to, to be given the skills to empower them to communicate themselves. You know, um, that's the way I think of it. That's the way I think of teaching, you know, composition. It's like, okay, everybody, we're going to, by the end of this, you know, you might hate me along the way. I hope you don't, <laughs> but we're going to get you to a point where even if you want to push back and argue in an articulate way against your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. About <laughs> I'm going to give you at least the skills to do that. Uh, we have a good time. We, we get some stuff done. I love that. And that, that yeah, that kind of blows my mind because I, I haven't heard anyone else say that I've been, I've, I've been, I've been really thinking about that lately. And it's, that's so great to hear that. It's not just my little pocket of the yeah. world. Very cool. Uh, Let's talk about your music. So I, I've been listening to the last album, really digging it. Uh, t- yeah, so it sounds like you've probably been playing music a long, long time, I would imagine, by just the quality of it. Uh, tell us about like when you first started kind of playing, maybe some of the musicians that that you were into influenced yeah. you. I, I love it. It was well. Thanks for saying that about the the latest record. I was. I was actually speaking to my students. I was just teaching. Uh, I was teaching a Bob Dylan song to my students the other day, and so I told them a little bit of my, you know, my own history with it. I mean, I was born in '82, so you know, in the you know in the '90s, um, everybody played electric guitar. It was sort of like grunge and just mm-hmm. right after grunge, and um, and so that was fun. I did that, and then yeah, I discovered. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan's music. I discovered a lot of music in like the mid nineties. I finally sort of heard records that were um, a little more rootsy. I mean, you know, grunge has its roots in a lot of that stuff too, mm-hmm. but um, bluesy roots, uh, folky roots and, and, you know, Towns Van Zandt's music for sure. Um, and so I started playing the acoustic guitar, you know, got a, got a, a harp rack and was playing harmonica and, I was writing songs and kind of tooling around a little bit. Um, but I, I, you know, I've just always played. I've just always played. When I was in college, I took a year off. I uh, was very confused. I was struggling a little bit. And during that year, I traveled around a bit and I played some music. And But I have to say, you know, speaking of this idea of like, you know, corporate attitudes toward creation, mm-hmm. for a long time, um, even though, I, you know, poetry was my main thing, I was like kind of afraid to let people know that I was writing songs and doing other things like that, because I think that I didn't want to be seen as like a Jack of all trades, master Mm -hmm. of none. Like Mm -hmm. you have to, you're not going to be taken seriously if you do all these different things. And I, you know, I don't know, five years ago or so, it was definitely before the pandemic. I was out giving a a book tour for, uh, for a book of mine. And I was in California and some friends, you know, they knew that I played guitar and I, I did a gig. I was just reading poems and they said, well, you play a song for us. I was like, well, I don't have a guitar. You know, and they gave me a guitar for us. <laughs> I played a song and, and I, I remember thinking on, on the on the flight back to New York, like, why am I cutting myself off from that? Who cares what people, mm. you know, think about this, that or the other uh, in this sort of hellscape of late, you know, consumerism where you have to be one thing. So uh, so I got back 
got back into it and got back into into sharing it. And about yeah, maybe two years ago, I I wrote that album that just came out um, a couple months ago. And uh, yeah, I like really stripped down sound. You know, just me, the guitar, voice, harmonica every now and then. And this, this is called the wind that knows the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what. Yeah. Like so, the your your music. It just it reminds me of your your prose. So if I didn't know anything about you or see a picture of you, I'd have a hard time placing the time period almost, which I love. It's like it has like a the the, the music, the lyrics, and then the novel I'm reading. It has this timelessness like a effect on me, which is very cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I encourage people to check out uh, the album. I'll put links to it in the write up here. Um, let's talk about the, so you're founder of the poem for you series. Tell me about that and how that came about. So during the pandemic, like many people, um, you know, I was thinking about ways to connect community communities. Um, I'm somebody who cares very deeply about the human voice when it comes to poetry. Um, and, you know, spoken word poetry is one kind of aesthetic. Um, which which uh, I don't happen to practice. Um, I care about the poem on the uh, very much on the on the written page. But you know, where is the real advocacy for uh, the human voice when it comes to performing the poem on the written page? I mean, of course, there are some people who care about it. But anyway, I jumped on social media during the pandemic, just like a lot of people, and I started just reciting poems, you know, my own, but but mostly mostly poems of other people. And I remember one day it was pretty organic. I, I wasn't sure what to read the next day. And I asked, uh, I asked folks and I got a really great response and I thought, okay, there's a community here. So I put together something called the poem for you series where I was just inviting, um, you know, guest readers to recite poems that had been requested. So people were sitting at home during the pandemic and it was like, I don't know, they want to hear a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem or they want to hear a Jericho Brown poem or anything. And actually I, Jericho did, did read for us. Uh, Robert Pinsky read for us. Mahogany um, Brown read for us. We, we had a really great uh, run. Um, I'm speaking about it in the past tense only because uh, I think I brought the project to some level and then kind of transitioned into another thing that I've been doing. Um, I've been doing poetry threads on Twitter uh, lately where I just, I post a poem uh, sort of thematic and, and, and announce a kind of theme that most people who engage with it are, are poets enough to know that it's not reduc reductive and they'll, they'll, they'll find a way to engage with that theme. And, and that's been really great. So yeah, I've transitioned a little bit out of the poem for you series, but it's still out there as a sort of document. There's um, there are you know, a couple dozen readings by some fantastic voices, a nice diverse group of voices. And I'll probably pick that up again at some point, but what, what I'm really saying is that I'm always trying to figure out ways um, to do my part to contribute to the poetry community, to share poems, to give platforms to, you know, to different voices. I, I get a lot of joy out of doing that. So I, I'm someone who knows pretty much nothing about poetry. And I've, oh, I, I just, I think when I was younger, I just, I just felt, I don't know if it was the way things were taught to me in high school, but I just felt stupid when uh, it, it was, shown to me and I just you know I didn't get it so then like of course you as a teenager you bristle if you don't understand you're like oh this sucks so um I would just love to hear some maybe some you know maybe a crash course on on 
what brought you to poetry and, and give me some names of people that I could check out or, or yeah. our listeners could check out someone who, who does, you know, if we don't know anything about poetry, where could we Absolutely. start? Well, you know, uh, again, I don't want to, I don't want to condemn any teachers in your, maybe it's no fault of theirs, but it does sound like maybe it wasn't presented to you in the right way because I am a firm believer that if, if, if children and then young people are, are, you know, if poetry is presented to them um, in, in, a, in a proper way, they might not all become poets, nor do I think they should all become poets, but uh, they could very easily all become appreciators of the art because, you know, poetry, however intellectual or heady it might be, um, it starts as a bodily experience. And then I, I think very often what happens is the reason people feel stupid, as you say, when they're presented with poetry is because they're presented with the poem as though everything the artist did was conscious. And you have to be aware of that conscious process, which is not at all the composition, like what, what poetry is. Um, but you know, I, I'm somebody, as I say, I was, I was very interested in mathematics, this, these sorts of things. I come from a wonderful family, but not a family of artists. So I'd had no idea how to be a custodian for these feelings in me that wanted to create art, that wanted to write, that wanted to sing songs. Um, and it was really, you know, I fought it for a long time. And it was only after I went to college and I found a community of people who were supportive and like, yeah, you know, show me the poems you're working on. Let's talk about that. It took me seriously that I was able to really just totally give myself to it. Um, and so, you know, I always say one of the best things that that people could do, young people could do is I used to say, get some anthologies of poems and just read them and see what moves you try not to be heady about it. Start there. And nowadays the good thing is you can have a lot of that online. So as I say, on my own Twitter account, I do these sort of daily digital crowdsourced poetry anthologies, but there are so many people. I mean, the one name that comes to mind is uh, Ilya Kaminsky, who is a fantastic poet and just a great soul. And he's got a wonderfully active social media presence. And he's always, um, you know, he's always sharing poems. And then there are books. There are great books that can be used. My former teacher, Mark Strand, um, who passed away some years ago, he and uh, the poet Evan Avon Bo Boland, who, who also has, has since passed away, they have a book called The Making of a Poem. And that's a lovely book I often recommend. Uh, it's good for students. It's good for anybody to have on the bookshelf. It's a little anthology of forms. You know, they talk a little bit about, they don't get too deeply into it, but a little bit about the sonnet or the heroic couplet or different forms. And then it's also an anthology, a collection of different forms of those kinds. You know, uh, the Academy of American Poets is a great resource online. They do a daily poetry series, a poem a day series. Uh, these days, they have guest editors for that. Um, so the voices are very diverse and interesting. And of course, the Poetry Foundation online is a great collection of, of contemporary poems, um, as well as, uh, you know, canonical poems. So, so many great resources. But, um, but yeah, those would be some, I think, interesting places to, to start and just to maybe introduce poetry as a part of your day in this way where you say, this is my own relationship to poetry. You know, I mean, there's nothing I have to do with it. You know, it's not, I don't have to, to mine a little nugget of truth out of it. it, it you know, it doesn't have to be one thing. Uh, uh, Rilke said poems are experiences. Um, and that's it, you know, have an experience with it. Um, the way you would take a walk in the woods and, and it feels just like something you can't quite um, 
can't quite distill into one little little right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like letting I think letting a poem just be that is a great way to to start making it a part of your life. I love that. So it sounds like it, it wasn't until college that you kind of became interested in this that you 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 know you met people that were Yeah, I was interested. Well. I just didn't know really how to make it part of my life in a way that felt possible, you know. Um, but, you know, it, when people talk about Harvard, they have, I know that they have ideas about it. Um, look, I come from, I come from a small town. Both of my parents, wonderfully smart people, they didn't get four-year college degrees. Um, I was that I, I was told by my guidance counselors in my little school that there's no way I could go to a school, you know, like that. So uh, people, I don't know, maybe whether they have ideas about me or about that school. For me, it was a miracle because when I, I, you know, I worked my my ass off, and when I got there, it was like it had nothing to do with being stuck up or snobby. Or it was just like, oh my god, I can I can sit in the dining hall and have a conversation with these other 18 year old guys about you know, sure about the typical, you know, boy stuff and whatever, but also they want to talk about philosophy mm -hmm. and they want to talk about poetry and they want to, I mean, it was absolutely amazing. That kind of community, that's what you get when you go to a school like that. And, and it's still a huge part of my life. My, I just took my wife and my son up there in November for, a, you know, to give a reading from the new book and the community is so supportive and so that was where I really felt like, okay, I remember I left a poem that I had been working on out on my desk. And one of my very closest friends, whom I'm going to go visit in Scotland uh, uh, very shortly, he found it. He saw it. And he said, listen, you know, you've got to do, you've got to do this. You've got, to, you've got to continue with this. And those voices were just transformative, you know? Yeah, I mean... It I, I get it. It's like you, you sometimes feel so alone. And then when you, when you, when you come together and it's like, it's a, it's kind of mind blowing. I think I had, you know, on a, you know, in my college experience, um, I stayed, you know, I stayed in Utah, but same kind of thing. You feel like maybe you're the only one who's into art or whatever. And, and then you say like, Oh no, there's a whole world. There's a whole ton of people out there, which is, you know, and then, and then it's like, then you learn from them. And I think that's one of my favorite things about, you know, talking to writers, talking to artists is you get, you know, their, their brain, you get, you get the list of people that they love, that they, that they're influenced by that you, you may have never heard of. And then, and then that opens up a whole new, you know, world and then you can keep going and going and it, it never ends. And I think, uh, you know, kind of going back to Maudlin house or, or whatever, like there's just so much good stuff out there. I think um, it's maybe some people easy to fall into the idea when if they're looking only at the huge corporate, like we like we mentioned, maybe the stuff's kind of trying to appeal to everybody, and then it really just kind of for people like us, it just kind of sucks. So yeah, and, uh, and if it appeals to not to cut you off, but I mean, no, no, yeah, that go ahead. Things, yeah, that's it. Things that appeal to everybody. <clears throat> excuse me things that appeal to everybody often appeal to nobody you know so <laughs> yeah it's like there there is of course great work coming out from some of the larger presses and i think there are some editors who allow writers to be writers and all that is great 
but you know, it's obvious that sometimes a book will have existed and maybe even be sold to a larger press. And it has this kernel of this amazing originality. Mm. And then I call it the American idol vision of art these days. Like (laughs) we know exactly how to package that. Right. It's like all this great music maybe came out in the sixties and the seventies, right. Right before the music industry figured out how to package everything. Right. Mm. So it's like, you're, you're right here. We're going to slide you a little bit to the left. That's where, we know where a market exists, or we're going to slide you a little bit over here and a market exists over here. And it's what happened to the original thing. So I often say that, um, you know, again, I got that bad news about Platypus Press closing this morning, but think about an analogous moment in the history of literature. Think about the early 20th century, for example. I mean, how many of the great works were coming out with very small presses, presses that only existed for a year or two, I mean, you know, who was publishing Gertrude Stein's work, who was publishing, you know, these, these, this moment that we're in now has an opportunity to be a really exciting moment where a lot of the great literary works are coming out with independent presses are coming out with, with small presses, but it is a matter of how to get them to survive and how to get uh, reviews for the books and how to get people to care about it instead of it just being you know, everybody knows who's going to get the, you know, uh, the, the, the nominations this year, everybody knows who's going to get the, and some of those books are well-deserved, but God, I mean, you know, even the way we talk about independent and small presses, there's like this way where it's like, we can't help, but maybe internalizing a value judgment on it. Like, yeah, let's be yeah. totally honest. Is there a bunch of crappy work that comes out from really small presses and whatever? <laughs> sure. Totally. There is There's a bunch of stuff and, and, and most of the self-published stuff that's coming out, it's like, I'm a, I don't want to read it. I'm yeah. just being totally yeah. honest. Same here. But, yeah. but, but you know what, that, but there is so, there is work coming out with these, with indie presses that is just that what I would prefer to read beyond anything else, you know, um, rather than something that's been perfectly packaged and is ready to go. And, um, so, you know, how do you do it? Well, you just find something you love and spread the word. I mean, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. If you have a position of some influence, if you have a position, whether it's social media influence or with your students, um, just lead with love. You know, there's a million things you could say, you know, that are terrible, whether they're from, you know, micro presses or big presses, but it's like, instead you go in and you say, here's something I read today. Here's a book that I love. You guys should check it out mm-hmm. there, you know? Yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stock your book in my classroom, so I'm gonna I'm gonna, <laughs> nice. I'm gonna push it on the the readers. Uh, that's another thing I've noticed about um, the the pandemic coming, you know, rebounding or whatever. Uh, I'm seeing a lot more kids with books, uh, like hard copy, you know, whatever it is. I think that is such a cool thing. I was reading an article this morning in the L.A. Times, and it was about Barnes and Noble and. You know, I have mixed feelings about them, but how there's a new CEO and and they're they're trying to um, not have every store exactly the same, like the layout of it. So they have, you know, some local stuff. There's like staff recommendations. So it's not all just homogenized and exactly the same, like you're walking into a Walmart and, and you know yeah. exactly where to go. So I thought that was kind of that was kind of cool. And then you know, there's an increase in sales. And I think they're it. it it's very cool because I there was a a while there where I'm like, oh, this is completely dying. This is like there's there's no hope, but there is, you know, it's cool at seeing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there there definitely is. I know what you mean about Barnes and Noble because, of course, I have the same ambivalences about it. But 
right now, you know, where, where I'm living, um, my wife and my, my son were living out in Long Island to be close to her, uh, her parents, get a little help with the baby. And, you know, there's, there, I mean, you're not going to find an independent um, little bookstore. And that's sad. But every Saturday, I take my son to the Barnes and Noble. They have a little story hour. Mm-hmm. And he runs around and he picks out a little book. And, you know, it's something. Yeah. Um, I have noticed a little bit of yeah, the, the kind of staff curating um, things. But, yeah, same thing with small presses, small bookstores. You know, the, every time I travel around on this book tour that I'm at, um, you just meet these amazing people who own and operate these little bookstores. I mentioned Christina Rosso in Philadelphia. Um, th- there have just been these tremendous bookstores that really are centers for the community in the, especially these smaller towns that you bump into. Um, so yeah, I always try to encourage people to su- support them if they're buying books, but, um, no, I, it's, look, it's never going to die. I mean, there are always going to be people who, who, who need stories told in, in, in words, you know, rather than acted out, it's just a different art. It's just, it's not any, you know, better or worse, or it's just a different art. And then in terms of poetry, you know, there's nothing that can replace that. It's its own thing. It's the primal word spoken or read on the page, um, you know, without any accompaniment by other media, that's, it's pretty raw. And I think that, that that'll last as long as the soul does. Yeah. I love that. Uh, well, yeah, the the swallows of Lunetto, um, you can get it anywhere, but I'm sure you agree. We encourage you to get a copy on Maudlin House. Um, that's the way to go. Small presses like that that put out good stuff. We don't, you know, we want to keep them around because uh, they are so important. I, I did want to ask. So um, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, this podcast also goes on the radio in Santa Cruz in Monterey, California. So uh, we'll have a little time to play a song or two after. Is there one of your songs that you would like us to play um, for a broad Santa Cruz audience out there? You can play the title track of, of The Wind That Knows the Way, which slides okay. uh, in a little California reference for those listeners. So Awesome. <laughs> I, will, I will do that. That's great. We'll, we'll, we'll play it out at the end. Uh, well, great. Anything else you want to add as we kind of were this hour kind of flew by? This is yeah, really enjoyable. No, no I just want to say thanks. I mean, you know, as we talk about small presses and as we talk about independent presses, I think also the, you know, the podcast uh, form, it's, it's, you know, there's so many great things that can be done with it. So I just want to say, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, people like yourself who are taking advantage of the democratization of, 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 you know, the production of content and, uh, you know, caring about, about writers and, and, and giving platforms for all sorts of people who are doing, you know, artistic work. Um, you know, I'm sure you know this, but you know, it's, you know, something, something I'm grateful for, for sure. So, so thanks for having me on. Thanks for, for doing what you do. No, that, that means a lot. I, I, I appreciate that. That, that is so nice to hear. Um, yeah, I love the book and I apologize that I wasn't able to get it all done, uh, my homework done before seeing you, but I, like I said, I love it and I'm going to be posting about it as I, you know, no spoilers, but I'm going to be posting about it as I kind of, um, wrap it up in the next, um, week or so. So, uh, yeah, this was, this was great. Joseph, you're welcome to come back anytime. 
Um, I'd love to talk more about poetry after maybe I do some <laughs> some some reading. Yeah, but if you get stuck, if you get stuck, send me an email. I'll send you some recommendations. I would love. Yeah, <laughs> I probably will do that. But yeah, this has been this has been great. So I thank you so much for taking some time out of your Saturday to talk to me. My pleasure, Kyler. Thanks for everything. Absolutely. Take care. spring won't come to Colorado and the night won't rise from Morrow Bay will you wake babe on a road that hasn't known you and listen to the wind that knows the way the body is dust that we have borrowed And our scars are just the weight of what can't stay But your eyes are the silence of tomorrow That will never be taken away Cause I felt the snow in West Virginia and I've been the wind in Frisco Bay but this cold heart of my own will stay a rolling stone till you take all my maps away now mama Says the best seas are the deepest And Papa says to row and carry on But you cannot keep a secret from the mirror And you cannot know a lover till they're gone I have ridden through the sleet of Bandit Canyon I have seen the snow in Jackson in the spring But the weight of the rain that falls down on our grave Says we're given the things we can give Now I'll make for you a little table from the old pines beside Pine Island Bay I will plane away the old knots that have plagued it And only the strengthened ones will stay I have tasted the wine in Caporetto I have given up the ghosts in me and Rome But you'll know that you have come To the place where you must come When to go to what you are Is not to go 
When the spring won't come to Colorado And the night won't arise from Morrow Bay Will you wake, babe, on a road that hasn't known you And listen to the wind that knows the way Yeah, listen to the wind that knows the way